Hi, and welcome to the Health Excel podcast with me, Chandana. And Martin. Today with us, we have Stephen Krauss from Bessemer Ventures. Uh, Steve, it's, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We're yeah. really excited to have you. <laughs> You're one of these guests we don't really need to uh, introduce because I think anybody who's in digital health and healthcare generally knows about Steve and, and you're sitting on, I was trying to count how many boards you sit on, it looks like loads. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wondered how you're managing your time, but uh, Steve, we wanted to jump in and spend a bit of time, just um, get a little bit of background on you, like going back to the very early days of, you know, pre-Yale, kind of, you know, what was that world like? And then talk us through a little bit about kind of how you moved into Bain and then you know we just want to get a little bit a little bit of background for the listeners in terms of who you are and, and uh, how did you get here and then we'll dive into the meat of it which is uh, we just did a report around payer adoption of, yeah. of digital and you know given your your involvement in people like Bright and um, the various other companies, uh, it'd be great to get your just your perspectives on it. But let's let's go back to the start, right? So, tell us a little bit about um, your early years and what prompted you to uh, Yale, and then kind of let's we'll, we'll just see how this rolls. Sure. Yeah. So um, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, uh, which, given that we're talking about insurance today, is is a relevant area because. For a time, it was the insurance capital of, of I think, the world. Uh, um, you know, it has Aetna there, Insignia, Travelers. Um, so a lot of history and, and, frankly, grew up around that industry. Um, I'm actually the son of uh, my mother, who unfortunately passed a few years ago, uh, who was a, a really early female leader and corporate executive. Okay. In fact, I think she was the first woman ever to run a large uh, commercial bank. Um, and what? so... Uh, my life story is really shaped by that and, and just uh, both having a mom who kind of broke glass ceilings um, and, 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 and then a father who, uh, frankly, when I was born, decided to basically become Mr. Mom um, because uh, my mom had gotten into the workforce. Uh, she, frankly, had helped a lot of women uh, around the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, then when that came around, she actually started a business helping consult women um, to get ready to join the workforce. Because at that time, because of the legislation, a lot of companies were looking for women to join the ranks. Uh -huh. So my mom started a business, um, you know, to help women do that and then got involved in the community. And then frankly, uh, someone recognized her talents, which were many and and had her join their company. And ultimately, she started off in HR, but rose to, you know, run finance divisions, consumer lending, frankly, the entire bank. And so, you know, I some of my favorite pictures of, of my And then ultimately, went and served on pretty large corporate boards um, because she was very unique at that time. There weren't a lot of women in mm -hmm. the workforce of her position. And so some of my favorite pictures of my mother are, you know, a, a board, a board, you know, of eight, eight, nine people, eight of which are white men and my mom. Right. <laughs> and I just think that's, you know, I know we have a lot to do in America. We're yeah. dealing with a lot of issues right now around, you know, equality and, and diversity and the importance of that. But I think I was fundamentally shaped by um, a, a life where, you know, frankly, uh, talent is genderless, is what my dad always says and what my mom would say. And so that had, I've always had that view uh, in my life. And my sister went on to become a very successful entrepreneur. She's a serial entrepreneur. And her, she herself has a lot of the embodiments of, of my mom. Okay. Uh, and I had a dad who, frankly, 
he himself was sort of a blue collar entrepreneur, but he, he took a back seat to support my mother and to see her be successful. So I think fundamentally as a person growing up, that shaped me deeply. And I hope, you know, I reflect those values in, in the way I try to lead my life and the way I try to raise my kids and um, the way my partnership with my wife works. And so I think that is sort of the core. The second thing is because of her position, my mom was very involved in the community. Um, mm -hmm. She worked in both Hartford and then ultimately had, you know, moved up or had to work in Boston because of, you know, Boston is the financial center of New England. And, uh, you know, in, in every place that she was, she was always called on by, you know, political leaders, by community leaders um, to, to be involved. And so I think those two values of sort of, you know, frankly, everyone has talents and, and you know, you should be accepting of all because the world's better when it's a diverse place and there's diverse viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And also that if you're lucky like I am and, and have had, you know, great privileges in my life that it is your responsibility to give back to the community. I think those two things have fundamentally shaped me. Um, and so, you know, I, I originally thought I was going to be a journalist. I actually really, okay. um, I wrote um, sort of some professional newspapers when I was in high school and, and in college, I worked at the Yale. But one of the reasons I went to Yale, you asked, was, you know, actually Yale is a very civically involved place because Yale sits in the heart of New Haven. New Haven has a lot of um, it's a very interesting place from a political perspective, a socioeconomic perspective. The, the university literally sits in the middle of the city, which has a lot of poverty, and you really can't escape it. You know, yes, it's an Ivy League, and yes, it's got the tall Gothic towers, but frankly, like when you go to Yale, you're in the middle of some really interesting town, gown um, issues. Yale is a huge employer, not just the university, but the actual hospital itself. And so, frankly, like the university itself is very involved in New Haven, um, you know, in many ways, really good. In some ways, obviously, there's some serious issues that, uh, you know, you face. Um, but I, you know, I think it drives the vast majority of the New Haven economy. Um, and therefore, you know, many people, the university encourages its student body to be involved in, in the city. I think 90% of uh, Yale um, uh, students are involved. Uh, in the community in some regard. And so it's a very active place, both in terms of community service, but also, um, just frankly, the town relationships with the city. Um, and so that's one reason I went, sort of hit that kind of community service. And the other thing, I was an inspiring journalist. And the Yale Daily News is like one of the best, if not the best college newspaper. A lot of graduates of the Yale Daily News have gone on to run the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera. And so I literally went, I mean, my father tells a story like, the first place I went on my tour was to the Yale Daily News building. Um, and, you know, when I got there, my, my, my friends in college can tell you, I wrote, you know, four nights a week. I would be up till midnight. Um, I covered the town gown beat. I, and so I really thought I was going to be a journalist. Um, and I thought I would graduate and hopefully go work for a major newspaper. It turned out that I lost the love of writing. I, I actually loved, um, I loved interviewing people. I loved hearing their stories. I loved doing investigative journalism but I actually lost the love of writing to deadline. Uh, Cause you know, every <laughs> night you got to hit the deadline, your editor right. writes down the story. It's, it's a little prosaic, right? You, you yeah. write sort of who, what, when, where, why. Um, and you know, that's just sort of the formulaic piece of it got, I just got tired of it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I actually think there's some things that I learned in journalism that very much apply to my job today. Uh, it's yeah. not, uh, uh, it's not a straight line to how I got to venture capital. We can talk more about that, but um, actually a lot of things you do in journalism, you know, trying to get to the core of an issue, figuring out how you uh, understand someone, figuring out how you make them trust you to tell you things that they probably shouldn't tell you. Yeah. Um, 
that's a lot of what you do in diligence. Um, right, you know, right. I hope I'm a trustworthy person, but you're also trying to make people feel comfortable to sort of give you insights into the company or into, you know, a reference on a, on a, on a person. And I think some of those skills I learned in journalism. So that's how I got to Yale. Um, and uh, that's sort of a little bit about me. Um, and then from there, the, 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 the road to venture capital is not necessarily straight line. So we can talk more yeah. about that if you want to. Perfect. Yeah. Let's, let's just pause there for a second because I want to come back to your mom and without trying to age you, gives a sense of what type of time period you were talking about in terms of her being an active, uh, active yeah. executive. Yeah. I was born in 1976, so I'm 43. <laughs> <laughs> which you can tell by my gray hair, it's, it's uh, some people think I'm older than that. Um, but but, uh, but uh, she, when I was two, she entered the workforce. So this is 1978. Wow. But very quickly, she rose up. And so by the early to mid 80s, she was one of the corporate leaders in Hartford. And then by the late 80s was sort of one of the leaders in New England um, uh, banking. And so it, her rise, she, her rise is very very fast. I mean, she graduated from Mount Holyoke, to give you an example, which is an amazing women's college. She got into Yale Law School, but her mother at the time, because this is how different times were back then, her mother said, you know, you should probably go to Katie Gibbs secretarial school, school instead, because, you know, you're going to get married, and but you want to be able to maybe have a job. And so, like, my mom, um, you know, the world in which she grew up, and her mother was amazing, by the way, because she was a single mother, which I think also shaped my mother's life. But, um, so she had to be strong and independent, and she was sort of the the the, the oldest child in the family. But um, you know, she for the first part of her career, she really was uh, stay at home with my sister and take care of her, and then also was active in the community. Um, but ultimately, that just wasn't enough for her. And frankly, that just you know that's a that's a great life for many, but for her, she wanted more. And so her talents ultimately pretty quickly took her up the the, the ranks. So. My my formative years as a kid were, you know, um, you know, frankly, my mom was was working, although she always made a habit of getting home and, you know, doing flashcards with me for quizzes and then would go back to work after I went to bed. So, you know, I just don't know anything other than having a, a, a working mom and, and that sort of role model. So in in the in the, on the late seventies, that would have been very it would be unusual today, but very unusual back then. What 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 were the characteristics, the values that she had that 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 got her that success that led her to kind of running a bank? You know, if you were to kind of distill it down, what did you observe that you know the traits that she she had that really helped her get to that? Very strong. I think that was fundamentally shaped, shaped by her life, you know, her, her, her young life where her father uh, was unfortunately suffered from issues of alcohol and, and um, ultimately passed away. Um, and she had to be, in some ways as the oldest child, she had to be, you know, there for her brother and her sister and, and supportive of her mom. Yeah. Um, so she was strong, very yeah. strong woman, um, but not strong in any kind of bravado way, just like an internal strength and sort of, you know, that 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 willingness to just move forward and you know i can't imagine the roadblocks she faced the discrimination the comments um but you know she just had a like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna get through it i'd say that's number one two she was a great listener yeah i mean everybody says that my wife says that you know everyone says that she they would wish she was still alive for her kids because she just had an amazing way of listening she always said god gave you you know one mouth and two ears for a reason right <laughs> and so i think 
she could draw people in, understand them. She would remember what they said. Um, she spent a lot of time listening. And I think um, that ability to receive and not transmit <laughs> and, and take that information and use that as a tool to, to understand people, to, to engage them, to motivate them. She was exceptional at that. Um, I think she was a, a really good mentor, not to a lot of women. I mean, I can't tell you when her funeral or she's won a lot of awards, how many women come up to me and said, your mom, you know, literally shaped my life and, you know, awesome. got me to where I'm in. And, and, and you know, if it was for women, for men, she was just a very good mentor. And I think that's because she really cared about people. So yeah. um, spent a lot of time doing that. And uh, those would be the traits that I think were, were exceptional. Yeah. So you had you had that around you as you were growing up and then you said, OK, I want to go down. I want to be a journalist and you get into it and you enjoy talking to people. But then this kind of constant deadline is like just takes the joy out of a little bit. And so then you decide you decide you're going to go on a different path. Tell us tell us how you get the not the straight line. Nobody goes to VC straight line or very few. So tell me how you. how you Yeah. Answer. So I, you know, <laughs> I didn't really know anything about business. I mean, we talked about it in my, uh, around the kitchen table because my mom obviously was in business. My dad was a blue collar entrepreneur. My sister, I told you, was an entrepreneur. My sister, by the way, is 10 and a half years older than me. Okay. So she's like a second mom to me and we're the only two children. Right. Um, so, you know, she was a lot older when I was young and she was starting her career, you know, building her company. So we talked about business, but I didn't know anything about it. So when my junior year, I kind of burnt out on writing right journalism i was like holy cow i gotta figure out something else to do <laughs> and so i sort of said janet what do i do you know and she's like oh go learn about business well how do i do that <laughs> right um and so she said she had worked in a consulting firm herself uh coming out of college and she said you know cult consulting firms and my mom was obviously very helpful and guiding me consulting firms are a great place to go yeah. and and you know learn about business meet really talented people and so I just applied in my junior year for internships at a few firms like McKinsey and Bain and BCG. And um, I was lucky enough to get a, an in, a internship at Bain. Honestly, I think it's because one of my sister's friends from business school interviewed me. Like I really <laughs> didn't know anything. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I guess I have some charisma. I, you know, I can chat. I probably talk more than my mom ever did, but I, I did get an internship. Uh, my, one of my sister's friends was one of my finalist interviews and I think I did okay. And I just really liked it. It was yeah. fascinating to me. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of like, ima I imagine what a law degree is in some ways, because it's really intellectual. You're focused on a lot of different businesses. You, you know, you're never bored, um, but also had fabulous people. Like some of my best friends still yeah. to this day are from my Bain days. And so it was sort of like Bain has this culture of like work hard, play hard. And, you know, you'd work really hard hours, but then you'd be around all these amazing people and you'd want to go have like a drink with them or, you know, go do a cookout. And so it was just a really fun place to be, um, uh, both intellectually and advancing my skills, but also socially for, for two years out of college. And, and it's actually there where I learned that I loved healthcare because, um, you know, I worked on some industries that I just had no interest in. Like I did a case for waste management industry and I actually worked on the, you know, the the you know foibled uh, AOL Time Warner merger. I'm definitely dating myself now, but like this was one of the, like the most disastrous mergers ever. I think they had like three consulting firms working on the the whole project. It was like just a huge integration, and so that was really boring to me because I didn't give a hoot about any of those industries. But ultimately, I found my way to healthcare, and one of the first clients I worked on in healthcare was Johnson and Johnson. Okay, um, which is a 
a company that has obviously historically a great reputation, right? High integrity, um, has both therapeutics as well as consumer health uh, unit. Um, and I just really loved it. Like I was like, oh, wow, this is the industry. I finally found something that sort of was business minded, but also sort of hit upon my kind of do-gooder, um, yeah. you know, uh, part of what I was looking for in my life. And I was like, oh, wow, this is healthcare. It's awesome. Like I can be around really smart people because obviously most of the people, a lot of people in healthcare have advanced degrees, right? I can, you know, be in an industry that's growing and interesting and has politics involved in it, right? In terms of the regulatory aspect of it. So that sort of hit on some of those things. And then I, you know, it also can be in a way that, you know, advances your, you know, career economically. Uh, and so I sort of just honed in on that at Bain and um, did a bunch of healthcare cases. And, and that really um, was great. Um, and then <laughs> my next stop is very random. So I told you, this is a, a winding road to VC. I'll, I'll eventually get to how I got to VC, but um, I had served on a board of a charter school in Boston, actually was the chair. And one of my, and I got, did that outside of work because I was really interested in, you know, what charter schools can do for yeah. kids who are, come from, yeah. you know, um, impoverished backgrounds or underserved backgrounds and can give them sort of a, a really high education. I was very proud of the school I was involved with. But one of my co-board members, who's become a friend, um, knew that I was looking for what I wanted to do next. Because I wasn't going to be a career consultant. I knew that. I didn't want to do that. Um, and he said, oh, Steve, I know you're interested in politics and, you know, the community. My, one of my really good friends is running for governor in Massachusetts. Would you be, and she was a Yaley. Her name was Shannon O'Brien. And would you be interested in potentially meeting her and, and, and seeing if there might be a fit? Because I, you know, at this time I was 24, I didn't have a family. I thought, heck, why not? My mom always told me actually, and I, this is one of the best things my mom told me was, um, when you're young, um, explore a lot of different things. Yeah. Because it's the only time in your yeah. life that you can do that. And frankly, that's what makes life so rich, right? You know, you ultimately, Steve, and she believed in me deeply, like you will get to the place where you'll find what you want and you will be successful. She had great faith in her kids, but you know, take the time to explore. You can do it. Um, I was lucky again. I'm, I'm very lucky. Great, great um, advice. Yeah. 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 And so well, can I also just add, it's refreshing to hear from you that consulting is really fun because <laughs> you always yeah. hear like the most negative stuff. So that's great. Really refreshing. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, I ended up working on that campaign. Um, she hired me. I was her first employee. Okay. And Shannon was a, a woman candidate. We actually ran against four men in the field. She was a moderate Democrat. She really uh, did a great job of, of sort of come, you know, defining her message. She was the sitting treasurer of the state. So she had a good financial background and we won this very contested democratic race. And we ultimately ran against Mitt Romney. Okay. Um, who people know, obviously who's still now the sitting Senator of, of Utah, but ran for president. But before that, he actually in a very close race beat us um, uh, ultimately to become the governor of Massachusetts. We lost. Turns out that our running mate, uh, who our Lieutenant governor candidate was a fellow named Chris Gabrielli. And Chris Gabrielli was a fellow who founded Bessemer's healthcare practice. Um, and so when I was on this campaign, I saw Chris and I was like, that was like, that was like the first person I saw who's like, wow, this guy's like my mom. He's like super talented, like cares deeply about what he does, the community, super smart, like a great, you know, he had all these traits. And I was like, I want to be like that guy. And, you know, I was, uh, we lost the campaign and actually Bain was nice enough to give me a leave of absence. They were going to welcome me back. And I was about ready to um, go back to Bain. And Chris calls me up because obviously he wanted to be Lieutenant Governor. He lost. And so he wasn't going to be serving. And he's like, would you like to come work with me? And so ultimately 
that's the winding road to how I got to Bessemer. Uh, you know, journalism, consulting, uh, politics. Fantastic. Through a random chance, I met the fellow who hired me and who was the partner at, uh, that I ultimately worked for at Bessemer as a young associate. And so anyways, when people, when kids, you know, students at HBS or Stanford Business School ask me, how do you get into VC? I always say, you know, honestly, yeah. <laughs> my story is not one to follow, but yeah, that's yeah. how I got here. Yeah, but it's all about people. It's the two the two jobs have been about following people that you believed in, right? So yeah, 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 great. And also that behind every successful woman there are many great men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely agree with that. <laughs> great stuff. Definitely. So we're going to switch over. Um, you've been a, you've been a Bessemer for it looks like about sixteen years. Uh, yep. And um, you know, as I mentioned at the start. You know, you've been involved, you're involved, you have been involved and are involved with some of the most interesting companies in digital yeah. and kind of disrupting that space. And so kind of kind of could change the change the conversation now. Um, so Chandana, do you want to jump in and, and maybe yeah, talk about happy you know, what we've found I, so far in terms of our report and, and kind of them? Absolutely. Steve, I know you've uh, invested in Bright Health and that company interests me particularly um, as it relates to, so our report essentially explored how far up U.S. health plans in adopting digital, right? Are they investing in, partnering with, um, and just their attitude towards um, change, right? And honestly, some of the some of the responses were quite positive. Um, I'll say that I, I think I was more cynical walking into this process, and and I was uh, uh, it was refreshing, I guess, what I heard. Do you believe, just based on uh, on your experience with Bright and and therefore an understanding of the industry, that there is something like a successful formula uh, for or formula for successful innovation in the in the plan space? Um, I, I think that we see, so if we're talking about, I, I think your report did a nice job of laying out, you know, 50% of the market, by the way, it's a huge market, right? So 50% of the market is controlled by the incumbents, right? And then there's another 50%, which is kind of the long tail, which includes, you know, as you guys do a nice job laying out, you know, local plans, you know, right. blues, which are, you know, basically local plans, as well as some new starts, right? Some new startups. Um, and so I think we need to talk about the two differently. And maybe that's even three. You know, you've got the incumbents, large nationals, the blues, and then you've got sort of yeah. the, let's, let's say the new startups, right? I think as it relates to the incumbents, there are, there are um, I think, bright spots. Um, but I don't think there's like one entity who has nailed it in totality. You know, yeah. I, I'd sort of point to the incumbents. Um, maybe there's sort of, Three, and I'm sure I'll leave them out, so I apologize, but I kind of think about like the United Optum, right? Yes. Who's probably the most advanced when it comes to pushing on value-based, pushing on the integration of, you know, payer and provider. Obviously they've acquired a bunch of different providers, everything from urgent care to surgery centers, right? To, you know, even, uh, uh, you know, very advanced primary care or, or, or risk-bearing groups across the country. Right. Um, they also are pre-advanced when it comes to the adoption of digital and technology through Optum, right? Which are two things that you hit on in, in your report. You know, how far we are at, behind as an industry, I think you call them yeah. laggards in terms of digital adoption. Optum, I think, is the farthest of the payers. And I think they're also pushing the farthest on, on value-based. I think Cigna um, Ventures is actually an interesting company in that I kind of feel like 
um, they are doing a lot right now on, under you know Tom Richards and Cigna Ventures to really work pretty innovatively with a lot of these new digital health, um, either you can call them point solutions or full stack vertical care solutions, things like Livongo, yeah. you know, um, uh, the companies in behavioral health and musculoskeletal. They're, they're, I've seen them and I've worked with them where they're sort of thinking about, okay, how can we be creative in reimbursing these companies, right? Um, both through our ASO, you know, self-insured yeah. arm, but also on the fully insured side. Um, and so I think I, what I appreciate about Cigna Ventures is really pushing their thinking around and Cigna itself around, hey, we have standard CPT codes, but some of these things aren't set up for standard CPT codes. You know, if you're using chat-based function to interact with um, patients around a behavioral health condition as sort of a digital front door, right? So that you're, not everyone's going to a costly therapist or a psychiatrist. If you're using that chat-based function, like how do you pay for that, right? Because it's yeah. not the same as having a visit. And Cigna has been pretty innovative in thinking about how do you, bundle a bunch of chats or a bunch of interactions and, and make them the equivalent of a CPT code. And I think that's that kind of thinking that yeah. we need to see in the industry. And then finally, you have like Aetna and CVS, right? Which I think is a grand experiment, which is still very much TBD. But I don't yeah. think I could leave them out because just the size of that behemoth and the fact that, you know, frankly, it's a little bit different, right? Whereas I think Optum is very far along on the um, the sort of enterprise side and yes they have care providers like cvs is a retail i mean talk about consumer like cvs is a retail they are a consumer facing yeah. business right and so i think the the potential of having such a strong consumer you know uh retail footprint on basically every every main street in america and how do you take that asset and then parlay that into sort of better medical management yeah, that's a grand experiment, which I we, we are in the early innings of and I have no idea how it's going to play out. Right. So I, yeah. I think those are like the nationals and what they're doing. I, none of them has nailed it, but each of them has really interesting experiments going on. Yeah, I'd agree. And so maybe let's talk about some of the newer players, right? Like Bright Health and, and Bind and the rest of them. What do you think that they're doing differently uh, that'll help them stand out? Yeah. Is it just the fact that it's more a la carte, D2C? Or something yeah. else. Yeah. Well, so I think you have to put Bright, and I'll, I'll talk about Bright because I know them the best. Um, but I, you know, we could talk about Devoted or or Oscar or whatever as well. You know, what I think Bright realized is um, a couple things. One, it, and and it really plays on two trends, which you talk about in your report: consumerism and and value based care. I mean, those are the two sort of north stars of Bright. Um, and and and. And what they realized is that, you know, with the advent of Obamacare, which has been given such a bad name in, in, in American politics, at least one side of it, but frankly was a fundamental piece of legislation that's transforming our healthcare ecosystem and I hope is here to stay. Um, you know, the idea that individuals could buy their own insurance, could take money, whether it was subsidized by the government or their own money and buy in insurance. And by, by the way, do so at the scale of 10, 12 million people. Um, that's fundamentally transformative, right? As we talk yeah. about moving the healthcare system to a more consumer-based uh, economy, you basically, the way you get the consumer to first uh, get involved is actually to make the first choice, which is what insurance plan am I going to choose? Okay, yeah. and so I realized that this trend had come apart. It's, it was founded by very smart, experienced healthcare entrepreneurs who've partnered with, you know, technologists. Um, and said, okay, consumers are now involved in the American healthcare economy. So what does that mean? 
Well, we know in every other part of, of, of the economy that consumers, if given equal choice, what they, they, they feel is comparable you know, product quality, they're gonna choose on price, which is something that you guys talk about in your report, right? That we generally buy the cheaper thing if we think it's you know, relevant, you know, relatively equal in terms of quality. Well, Bright realized that. And they said, okay, so the way we'll win in this marketplace is if we have the lowest unit cost, but also have comparable quality. So how do you do that? So what Bright said is, we're gonna go into markets. They started in Denver, Colorado. And we're gonna partner with one health system in the market, okay? In Denver, Colorado, we partnered with Centura, right? Probably the number two, maybe sometimes the number one, but someone who wants to gain market share. And what we're gonna say to that, that system is, we're gonna give you all of our members. If you give us really discounted rates to the BUCAs, to the Blues, United Signa, Aetna, that's the acronym, BUCA. And, and so what did that do? Okay, so we give them all our members, we get the lowest unit cost. In most of our markets, we're either the lowest cost plan or the second lowest cost plan. But we also partner with a high quality care provider. So the consumer realizes they've got good quality, they've got a full network. Yes, it's narrow, but they've got the full offering of all the specialties they need and they get the lowest cost. But on top of that, the reason it becomes value-based is because we partner with one provider, right? For the first time really in, in healthcare, um, we have a payer and a provider who are totally aligned in the member experience, in the, the care management, uh, in the quality of service that they provide the customer. And so literally Bright, members of Bright's you know, medical team and members of the physician group that run you know, the health system, which we work with in every single uh, metro area, are talking with each other on a daily, weekly basis yeah. to hotspot and to take care of uh, patients who might be trending the wrong way. And so not only do you have a low cost product offering, but you frankly just have a better product that is very value-based, right? Um, and so this was very unique. And, and, and I'll just say the, the reason we can do this and we have sort of a moat around what we do, there will be other competitors, there are other competitors, but the reason that United and Cigna and Aetna can't do this is because United Cigna Aetna, their business has been, and, and many you know, billions of dollars of profit have been made on the backs of employers, right? Yeah. Of, of selling employer-based insurance. That's the way our healthcare economy was set up years ago. And it's a very profitable business, but guess what most employers want? Most employers want a broad network, right? They wanna be able to go to see any doctor. They don't wanna to have to be limited to one single health system. And so it's very hard for Aetna and United Insigna to say to you know, partners in Massachusetts, for instance, which is a very high quality institution, hey partners, we're gonna have a separate product where you're not involved. Like that just doesn't work in terms of the yeah. negotiation. And right. so Bright realized that they had this market entry and that's what they've taken advantage of. And that's interesting because you basically try to create a KP like model where there's the payer. It's, KP, it's Kaiser in a box for the rest of the country. Yeah. Without That's, actually that, having to build up that full enterprise. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I want to touch on the value-based care because you see, obviously we're all hearing how hospital revenues have been hit significantly with COVID, right? And all the elective procedures, all of this is not happening. So what do you think is going to happen to this? It, will it just still remain this fairy tale concept? You know, are we going to drop this now because we are not making enough money to talk about value-based care? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it's one of the first things I thought about, you know, in terms of when COVID hit and, and the impact that it had. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of short-term pain um, and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 
start with you know the casualties that we've had and, and, and the situation that we're in and the effect it's had and you know economically you know psychologically all of that um that's first order but then you know obviously our health systems in america are, are just getting crushed right um and and frankly the, the only positive of it for them is i think people have a new appreciation for the importance of healthcare workers uh, as frontline workers and as frankly heroes um uh, but I, you know, then the third, that was my second order, which is, gosh, what a toll this is going to take on health systems and how many are going to go out of business. And especially in rural areas where there's not a lot of access, that was sort of the second order thought I had. And then third order thought I had from sort of more of a long-term uh, effect is exactly the one you said, which is, is this going to slow down the, what I think is ultimately one of the two ways we bend the cost curve is either, and I think we got to do both, get consumers more involved because we've talked yeah. about how consumers tend to drive down price in economies. And two, fundamentally change the incentives of the game that's played in healthcare, right? Move the incentives to outcomes, to management uh, preventively and, and, and sort of longitudinally and proactively in terms of care, and not necessarily to reward, you know, hospital visits or even, you know, you know physician visits that aren't necessary. And so value-based care is a very important, um, I think it's a multi-decade march that we're on, but I worry that this this period of time where there's a lot of pain, that there's going to be uh, a setback. Um, and I just don't know right now, to answer your question, yeah. where we stand. Um, I think there are some physician groups across America who, frankly, are have made the investments in technology that you need to do and training, um, frankly, in financial systems and care management systems that are still marching along, you know, you know, ChenMed, Allidade, Oak Street Health, right? Um, Village MD, a lot of the uh, uh, risk-bearing provider groups in California that have existed for decades. I think yeah. those guys, uh, those groups, which often tend to be physician-driven, um, and so necessarily aren't part of the whole machinery of a big health system, yeah. I actually think they're doing going to do fine. Because frankly, the nice thing about value-based care is there's actually a lot of upfront cash that you get. Um, and so, you know, if you manage your business well, and, and by the way, you hit the outcomes, you can get paid on the back end too on that. So I think there are a bunch of groups who are in decent position. But yeah, I think health systems, um, except for the very well funded and the very advanced that are on, which are, are very few that are truly down the curve on value-based care, I think we probably will have a hiccup here. That, that is my fear. Just because there's just not enough resources to invest in a lot of things you need to do to get ready for value-based care. The big yeah. question is, the government is 50% of payments in healthcare, as we know. And so, you know, I don't say this a lot. I'm obviously already talked about my background. I'm a Democrat. But um, the one thing that the Trump administration, I think, has done well, I mean, that's not totally fair, but one of the things they've done well is, um, I think, around healthcare innovation. I was very worried that the transition from the Obama administration, which was exceptional yeah. and had folks like Bob Kocher and, and yeah. Andy Slavitt and lots of leaders in our industry, to the new Trump administration, I was worried that a lot of the value-based work that had been done was going to, you know, be derailed. And honestly, under Seema Verma's leadership, under yeah. you know um, Adam Bowler and now Brad Smith, um, frankly, they've been even more aggressive on promoting yeah. things like value-based renal care and primary care first. And you know, they've got yeah. a lot of initiatives to promote this. And so, um, while we may have a hiccup in terms of you know uh, health systems readiness to take this on. I think the government, as we know in healthcare, is a major driver of, of incentives. And so I hope they continue to march down this path and continue to push these initiatives and reward people who are gonna move us towards a value-based system.
Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like it is, it is positive. There's just a hiccup right now in the interim. So what, I mean, I guess just to, as we uh, get closer to wrapping up, what would you put your bets on now during COVID for, for what elements of health innovation will actually last and, and make an impact in the future? Yeah. So I, um, it's a great question. I think we're, um, we're focused on really um, four main areas at Bessemer. Um, you know, we've done a lot in our past around, you know, one thing I'll say is I think our industry uh, has come a long way in 10 years. And, and, you know, a lot of us are, you know, tend to be uh, hard on ourselves. Um, and, you know, healthcare is such a laggard as you were, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing, right? I mean, where we are in terms of technology adoption versus some of the other industries we look at at Bessemer. Um, but, you know, 10 years ago, we have to remember that like less than 25% of doctors had an EMR, right? And yeah. it was because of fundamental regulatory change, which the High Tech Act basically said, we're going to pay doctors to adopt an electronic medical record. And now that number is like 95% plus, right? That's a major fundamental change. And yeah, we can all crap on EMRs and they're, <laughs> you know, bad UIs, but like, we're capturing data. Like we didn't do that 10 years ago. And that's yeah. fundamental. Like I always say to my partners, if, you know, this is like the SAP or Oracle moment for enterprise software, right? Yeah. That happened in every other industry in like the 80s, right? You're talking about the 2010 period in healthcare where we actually were adopting SAP and Oracle-like systems. Yeah. If you could adopt, invest in a dollar or a thousand dollars, whatever the number is, back in SAP and Oracle, back in the 80s, you would be a very rich person right now, right? And so that's where we are in healthcare from an industry perspective. So anyways, that's all to say, we did a lot of investment successfully at Bessemer in the EMR space. And I actually thought that roadmap was gonna be, we call sort of investment areas roadmaps. I thought that roadmap was gonna be played out because frankly, that's not a greenfield market anymore. It's a replacement market because 95% of people have a system. But then came this really important piece of legislation, which by the way, got a little bit lost in COVID which was this interoperability legislation, yeah. um, which you guys talk about in your report. And, and frankly, it was announced right around COVID. So it didn't get a lot of attention, but it's been worked on a lot by the administration. And that's really important because that basically says to the EMR companies, and by the way, to their customers, to the health systems and payers, no, 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 we're not having closed systems. Like we're gonna modernize the, the healthcare uh, IT infrastructure, just like every other industry is. You're gonna have APIs that developers can pipe into. Yeah. You're gonna provide op open access to data. Right, the fax machine is no longer going to be the main modus of, of communication in healthcare. Still, seventy-five percent of healthcare communications today occur by fax, but that's because it's closed systems, closed architectures that don't talk to each other. That rule to open up those systems and to allow for free flow of data and use of that data by really smart technology developers—that's going to be fundamentally transformative for our economy. And so, we weren't going to do a lot in what I call the digitization of the back office save for this interoperability rule, which I think is a huge area for potential investment and where we already have a few investments and we're excited to make more. So that's sort of one bucket. Once you do that, you can automate the industry, right? And this is where, you know, you, you hear AI and machine learning and computer vision. And yes, those are buzzwords at HIMSS and what have you, but they're really important because there's a lot of things like healthcare is the most labor inefficient business in America, right? And there's a lot of things that you can automate. For instance, we have a company called Cuventus, which is all involved around patient discharge and flow in a hospital. And we've all been in a scenario where, you know, we've had a loved one in the hospital and the doctor says, okay, your mom or dad is ready to go. They can be discharged clinically. But then you sit there for a half a day or maybe in a full day 
occupying a bed because a lot of things didn't happen. Well, what right. Juventus does is it looks upstream. It basically takes data from a lot of different systems in the, health, in the hospital and says, oh, wow, Mrs. Krauss looks like she's about ready to be discharged, probably within the next six hours. Let's make sure her prescription is filled. Let's make yeah. sure her DME order is filled. Let's make sure she's got a sniff place to go to, right? And in many ways can actually automate some of that or at least nudge the frontline care workers to get the process going. And so there's lots of examples of AI and machine learning and computer vision that can be used in healthcare once the data is free and liberated through interoperability um, to basically make our industry more efficient. So that's kind of a second area that we're focused on. The third area is, and you couldn't have done our third area without having made the investments in the infrastructure that I just talked about, is now we can talk about digitizing the front office care, which we think of about as the delivery of care, right? And this is using things like telemedicine, but by the way, you have to have a fundamental EMR layer, layer below the telemedicine. Um, you, you know, you can uh, now do prescription fills and testing at home. And so we right now are very actively involved in investing in companies that are taking a full stack approach to, to providing virtual and digital care in specialty, specialty areas. Obviously the greatest success story so far in this is Livongo. It's yeah. now a $11 billion company, I think, pretty amazing, um, being very highly valued partly because they're focusing on a huge, you know, uh, expensive condition, right, diabetes, but partly because they're just providing a better offering, right? People used to stick themselves and take their blood sugar and do it kind of in an analog way, and Livongo made it digital, and then they wrapped around care to it, and, you know, and, and just made for a better experience for diabetics, right? And so we've invested in a company called Hinge Health, which I think you referenced, which is doing the exact same thing for musculoskeletal care, basically automating digital physical therapy so that you don't have to go to a physical therapist's office, you can actually do it in your own home. We're, we're, gonna, we're focusing on behavioral care and, and automating that because obviously in COVID, that's a huge stress area right now, uh, yeah. mental health. And there's lots of ways that you don't have to go see a, a therapist in person, you can actually do it virtually and you can actually actually chat with a coach and you know, uh, obviously help, your, help yourself get through this period of time and, and deal with those stressors. So um, that digital, Delivery of care is a, a big roadmap for us and we're really actively involved. And then finally, value-based, which we've already talked about, is a fourth roadmap for us. And so we're very interested in talking to any business that's focused on value-based um, care. So that's sort of where I think the opportunities yeah. are over the next decade. Makes a lot of sense, right? It's very practical, operational efficiencies and gift wrap existing solutions to make them smarter and just easier. So yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, that was that was great. I, I've I mean, I know we wrote the report, but each time I talk to someone about it and, and with you today, I've learned so much more. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, for, unfortunately, we're almost at time. So this could go yeah. on for another, another hour, but uh, unfortunately, we, we're going to run out of time. Um, Steve, we always ask our guests one question, and, and it's um, if you weren't at Bessemer, you weren't investing in healthcare in another universe, in another life, what, what would you be doing? I will be involved in some way in public service. I don't know what that'll be. Um, uh, that can be anything from, you know, focused on helping state or local leaders in healthcare or national leaders. Um, I, I love healthcare. That's, um, I, I think that's, as you probably heard, that's my passion. Um, so I think giving back in some way, it could be, you know, involved in community organizations. Um, it could be teaching uh, healthcare, you know, entrepreneurship at a at a at a at a, at a university or a business school. I, I think the second act of my career will be involved some way in in 
hopefully giving back whatever that may mean. Very good. And you're, you're already doing some of that, right? You're already teaching entrepreneurship in, in yeah. Harvard and you're already in Boston Children's and involved there. So you're already doing yeah. a bit of it. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for taking time out. And uh, sign of a good um, podcast, for, podcast for us is when we talk very little and the guests talk. Yeah. Yeah, I should listen more to my mom, but uh, I had a really good time. Thanks for all that you guys do for the, the industry. It's uh, and the report's awesome, so I hope everyone reads it. Great, thank you. Well, great to have you, Steve.